Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, a small studio is looking for a visual designer. This is a remote position. Design Action Collective is looking for a web developer in Oakland, California. Design B&B is looking for a junior designer in Chicago, Illinois. Digital Ocean is looking for a senior product designer. This position is in New York City, but is also open to remote candidates. National Geographic is looking for a senior design editor for National Geographic Magazine in Washington, D.C. And Ebi Wawa is looking for a UX UI designer. This position is in the Washington, D.C. area, but is also open to remote candidates. For just $99, your job listing will be featured on our job board for 30 days and will spread the word about it to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Michael Collette, a designer in San Francisco, California, at Greenworks. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name's Michael Collette, and I'm a multidisciplinary designer based in San Francisco, California. I'm on the steering committee at Design to Divest, which is an organization that seeks to center and uplift black creative talent um, wherever we find it. And I'm a partner at a company called Greenworks, and our slogan is tender, loving care for plants and people. Thank you so much for having me today, Maurice. Yeah, no problem. Wow, it's so formal. My goodness, this is a nightline. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I gotta gotta hit my hit my reps real quick. Gotta okay, <laughs> how's the year been going so far? It's still twenty twenty, right? So, uh, I mean, in some ways, yeah, it feels like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not bad. Truthfully, like still walking around, still freelancing, and and keeping as busy as one can. San Francisco conspires to be approximately 60 degrees while the rest of the country is boiling. So I suppose I should just be grateful. Oh, yeah, that's right. Just so folks know, we're recording this right now where there's like this 
massive heat dome over the like northwest United States. Like it's crushing most other cities, but San Francisco seems to be like the ice cube in the middle of all this. Yeah, they're joking that even the heat can't afford rent here. Which, <laughs> <laughs> understandable. Yeah. What has uh, San Francisco been like now that I guess the state and everything's opened back up? As a San Franciscan, I hold the right to criticize my city a lot, but I will say that the pandemic and broadly reopening has been handled halfway okay. People, you know, were generally pretty willing to put masks on. San Francisco is very, very dense. We all sort of live on top of one another, quite literally. And the mask rate was really, really high. People have, and myself included, quibbles about particularly things like outdoor dining and the way that that's come to pass. But we've mostly reopened. The cases aren't really spiking, touch wood. I don't think it owes much to our political class so much as just our citizenry, though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been weird how like Atlanta and Georgia, for the most part, has largely been open since... I don't know, like May of last year. Yeah, I have friends in Atlanta who say the pandemic never happened. <laughs> it really never felt like it happened. I mean, certainly there were companies that had closed down, like movie theaters and such. And even the city itself went through this whole reopening phase. Like right now we're in phase four of five of the city fully reopening. But it never really felt like the city closed. I mean, traffic's been the same going out and about oh, yeah. has largely been the same. I think there might have been certainly a time in early April where it felt like, wow, this is going to really affect the way of life here. And then everyone was like, you know what? We good. <laughs> they just, no, we, yeah, we they just kept going hard and fast here by American standards for sure. And the city and much has been made of the exodus from San Francisco that the numbers don't really back up, but Definitely a lot of boarded up shops that quickly got covered with graffiti. There's, I don't know. I like my city with a little bit of an edge to it. San Francisco in the last five years particularly had gotten to be a bit of a uh, a Disneyland. So a little more bite to the town always, always suits me. So you think it's sort of changing that way now that there's been that exodus? Ah, we'll see. Like I said, the exodus is, I think, a lot more hyped up than real. Like maybe some of the folks who were pulling down six figures and never really cared to be here other than for the job itself are in the East Bay now or, you know, somewhere deeper into the valley. But there's still this, roughly the same 800 plus thousand people here. I think what has sort of been interesting to see is that we all the most part looked around and went yeah okay i'll put this mask on and do what i'm supposed to do and and it, it broadly sort of worked i think a criticism that i've had of of everybody throughout the pandemic both presidential administrations to governors and mayors and, and everybody is that as citizens we've been you know sort of left to our own devices to figure this out and it was pretty cool to see san francisco by and large sort of figure it out yeah. You know, I finally, finally got to see you speak at this year's Where Are the Black Designers Conference. And for folks that, that don't know, I knew Michael when Michael, is Michael Collette still Michael. working, Michael? I mean, it's still my, I probably shouldn't say that it's still my email address, but yeah, it's still my email address. <laughs> I, uh, 
It was a nom de de brand or whatever you want to call it for a while. I'm mostly using my full initials as a professional mark these days, but I'm always working on something. That was why the name existed to begin with is because what are you doing? Well, I'm I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the day, it was a lot of black collar work, service industry stuff, and and that kind of uh, of work as much as graphic design. So it was an homage to to being on both sides of that fence. But these days, it's mostly just graphic design. Yeah, but seeing you at this year's conference and getting to to hear you speak on that panel, I was like, wow, this is dope. How was the whole event for you? Pretty seamless. You know, I tuned in. I was out and about on Saturday on some personal business, but, uh, you know, tuned in and watched a session before on Sunday. And, you know, much as Zoom, we've grown to joke is and designed to divest is pretty notorious for glitching out whenever I get too political. The technical part of it was was seamless. And then I don't know if you stuck around for the uh, online little after party, but there was just a, a wonderful sort of sense of community and particularly like the Slack rooms and the chats that were going on. I'm always impressed that people manage to produce anything resembling a human connection when it's just Zoom screens and chat windows, you know, to to Mm -hmm. organize a real event. And then I'm somebody who grew up on OK Player message boards and the old BB boards days and, and that kind of stuff. So I know it's possible, but the idea of like running a whole conference just digitally still, you know, strikes me as really impressive. So I was just blown away by all of it. The branding I thought was really, really nice. Uh, just some lovely illustrations and all the way through to the Zoom backgrounds for presenters, really well thought through. You know how designers can be, God, we're so nitpicky, but I just, I, I felt really touched to be a part of it and to be asked to be there. So I was yeah. really grateful. Yeah, I gave the second day keynote for the conference and that was something that I mentioned was, Now, more than ever, we have, of course, like these physical groups of people that got together, you know, pre-pandemic. We have Mm -hmm. Bay Area Black Designers, Black Designers of Seattle, and other, you know, kind of similar groups. But then, like, the number of events that sprung up over the last year because someone, like you said, had a Zoom account, they've got a Slack room, boom, put it together. You've now got a conference venue where you can Mm -hmm. bring people in and they can give talks and, like, the technology has progressed to the point that allows us to sort of spin this up pretty cheaply and pretty robustly, mm-hmm. which is is great to see. Yeah. And credit to the organizers, I think, particularly of, of this year's where the black designers, you know, without naming names, I've been to some other things that just sort of felt like work days. You're just yeah. in Slack and on Zoom all day. And I'm like, this uh, doesn't. Mm. <laughs> Whereas... <laughs> Where the black designers this year did not have that feel, right? And and I think that's the real secret sauce, if you will, is being able to to take these tools that, let's be clear, have been built for business purposes and to use them for something that is, you know, deeper and beyond that. Yeah. Ain't that just like black folks though? It sure is. <laughs> Making something out of nothing. But but yeah, the amount of different events and things that have come on. And I've you know, I did some of those events last year and it has varied wildly. Some of them have been super easy, super smooth, and then others have really felt like work. The first verses. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so like you mentioned, you know, you're a partner at Greenworks. Talk to me. Greenworks. Like, yeah, talk to me about that. What kind of work are you doing? 
Tender love and care for plants and people. So Greenworks is a fun story. I was up in Sacramento in December looking after a family member who had had some some medical work done. And while I was just trying to calm my nerves, I started flipping through a shelf full of books and posting them on my Instagram you know, when I found cool typefaces, just mindless research type of thing you do when you're twitchy about something. And a buddy of mine, Mohammed Suleiman in New York saw one of them, and it was this old 70s plant care book called Greenworks. And it had that one of those classic 70s wobbly font types, right? You can sort of picture it in your head. Mm-hmm. And, and the tagline was tender, loving care for plants. And he joked and he said, that would make a great T-shirt. And I said, oh, yeah, tender, loving care for plants and people. Why don't we do it? And so... We sort of dove immediately into the print-on-demand t-shirt economy, and the more we kept trying to typeset the words tender loving care for plants and people on a Gildan t-shirt, the more and more it felt like we were just really fucking up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There was just this fundamental disconnect between what we were saying and how we were doing it. Because, look, like... Gildans and and you know the cotton t-shirt economy in general is not a fantastic one right mm-hmm. so and we wanted to do more than just add another t-shirt to the world right like in 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 what way were we improving on not doing anything and so we we stepped back and my buddy mo realized that he had a friend Ange in Seattle who had worked with all kinds of different manufacturing and and was currently working in the legal cannabis industry there and that we ought to reach out to her about how to take this t-shirt thing on. And so there was a particular design detail that we wanted to do and we were having a hard time conceptualizing it. And so we reached out to Ange and Ange not only had already solved for that design detail, but immediately sort of picked up on the problems that we were having with the quick turnaround print on demand object universe and said, we're at a point now where we can not do this. And we all said, yeah, why don't we not do that? And so Greenworks now is a research company more than anything else. And and what we're trying to do is provide sort of as holistically as possible solutions to problems that we encounter as designers. So with t-shirts, for instance, rather than running immediately to, you know, a 100% cotton blank that you don't know how it's produced, but you probably can guess, you know, we're searching out, looking for, and working with people who grow hemp and use recycled cotton and who are looking at the water impact and and waste diversion from what they do. So rather than simply treating the t-shirt and the thing that goes on it as the design problem, we're looking at as much as we can, the whole thing from stem to stern. So we're in the process right now of developing a line of houseware solutions since we've all been inside this year and nobody needs really another t-shirt, but everybody could use a, a new pot for some plants or a blanket for their couch or an ashtray to burn some incense in or a nice water bottle. And there are ways to produce those that are in keeping with our ethos. Nice. 
when I looked at it initially, and this, you know, I don't know if this was an intentional comparison in general, but when I thought of it and looked at it, it, it sort of reminded me of what Seth Rogen is doing with Houseplant, with his brand. There's definitely, I think, some similarity there. I would admit that we are perhaps similarly aligned about various kinds of houseplants, if you will. Um, <laughs> but what I will say is that rather than approaching things from sort of a hype beast standpoint, mm-hmm. we're really interested in products as the result of design solutions rather than products as ends in and of themselves, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. We were just having a conversation about this yesterday. One of the things that we're really interested in doing as we produce objects is being really transparent about processes. Because, you know, what we're interested in is tender, loving care for plants and people. And that extends to the people that are making the objects that we're designing. Right. And I think that's a new, maybe not a new challenge for designers, because if you go back through, you know, industrial design history, there's certainly that awareness of it. But when we think about the holy grail for us as graphic designers, right, is passive income. You make a t-shirt, skateboard deck, coffee mugs, that kind of stuff. And and people buy it because they like the design of it and you don't have to worry about it anymore. But that stuff isn't without its own cost Mm -hmm. and it isn't without its own sort of ethical problems. And the challenge, I think, for us as designers now is to look at not just the object, but the process as the design challenge. So that's what we're doing. And I feel like that's that's an ethos that has started... I think in some aspect to creep up now because of the pandemic. Cause one thing certainly that this period has done is that it's really exposed supply chains and how fragile they are. Absolutely. And so when it comes down to people trying to create new sorts of products or things like this, they're looking at more, hopefully they're looking at more ethical ways to do it, ways that won't be a big tax on other resources and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, selfishly, ways that won't get stuck in the Suez Canal for a month. Like, there's also <laughs> just the the fundamental functional problems of hyper-globalized manufacturing in that your stuff is literally on the other side of the planet until it's not. And, I don't know, I'm a designer, I'm picky. That seems like a really bad way to have as much control as possible over what I'm doing. I mean, yeah, that's that's the designer way, isn't it? Like to, to to nitpick over the details and to really create something that is, I think, more towards art, particularly with physical works. Like I've had so many designers over the years where, yes, they may be digital designers by profession, but in their spare time, they're doing pottery or woodworking or something. They're making something tangible and they're doing mm-hmm. it with the amount of care and precision and such that they probably would with a digital design. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I think once you look at the world that way, it's hard not to do that in every part of your life. Like, I bet you are very, very intent on how your onions get chopped, even (laughs) if you've never worked in a kitchen before. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, partially sort of how I was raised. Both my parents are landscape architects, and, and I grew up sort of around them, not only and their professional peers. And so... I've long believed that every moment is an opportunity to bring a design sensibility to things, which to paraphrase Munari, I think is, is just a planner with an aesthetic sense. 
So if you've got a plan and a sense of taste, then, you know, you're halfway to a design. And even if that's just chopping onions. It's funny you mentioned that about onions. I remember reading something, this was years ago, about how an onion will actually taste differently depending on how you cut it. That's exactly the point. Yes, that's exactly it, right? Like sometimes you want the long slice. Sometimes you want the diced onion. Sometimes you want to put it in before the garlic. Sometimes you want to put it in after. Sometimes yeah. you don't want to put them in together at all. Mm. Yeah, good point. Yeah. You're also on the committee for a collective that's called Design to Divest. Talk to me about that. Design to Divest. I am just so full of love for these folks. So Design to Divest started in the context of the pandemic and the summer protests last year by a designer creative based out of Brooklyn named Vanessa. And they reached out to their network and extended Black creative networks initially for people to essentially for graphic designers to lend their skills to existing social justice organizations who needed design help. And we sort of quickly became a, a little bit of a running crew, you know, speaking of, of assembling community online and, and in virtual spaces. It's definitely sort of how that, that came to be. And over the course of, I guess now the last year and a half, We've gone from hosting regular weekly meetings for black designers and allies to sort of pulling back a little bit from the regular grind of the digital ecosystem and trying to be really, really intentional in uh, the work that we're doing. And so we're about to release in collaboration with San Francisco print shop, a butthole press that's B U T W H O L E for mm -hmm. those uh, listeners with sensitive ears. Our first zine, our first publication that's going to grapple with critical race theory and Afrofuturism and all kinds of things that are imminently topical right now that were only just sort of fringe ideas, you know, six months ago when we started talking about this. And broadly, we are immersed in the process of trying to create something that I, I mentioned during our panel discussion last weekend, like a walled garden for black creators. And this is something that is not only, I think, a priority for me with Design to Divest, but is also a priority with my work with Greenworks. I fundamentally believe that keeping up with particularly the Instagram algorithm for creatives is an inherently toxic and losing game. And I think anything that we can do to sort of literally just provide a space for black creatives and black creators to develop outside of that really consumptive an extractive digital space is something worth doing. And with Design to Divest and you all sort of coming together and doing these things, like, I guess, where do you want to see this collective grow into? Like, are there larger things also that you'd like to accomplish? Well, I mean, it, we'd like to divest from white supremacy in design in general. Yeah, that's the large goal and design as broadly as possible and, and divest as largely as possible. We are, I think, what did I say today? Disgruntled optimists as much <laughs> as anything else. 
about the possibility. You know, it's it's cliche for designers to be like, design can change the world. But the world is designed. So, yeah, I mean, sort of, right? And that's not to say that, like, any one poster is going to solve racism, right? But there is a level at which we can be looking to develop spaces, institutions, cultures that are not based on extraction from black people. Mm. I'm really curious about that notion that you said of, of divesting from white supremacy and design. Cause one thing that I've seen probably over the past two years now is just how much more political, I guess I would say black design initiatives have become that they've been largely steeped in these concepts of decolonization, divesting from white supremacy, et cetera. Cause I mean, it sort of makes sense. Like you have to sort of strip that away in order for us to really get back to what we hope is the root of what it is that we do. Because it reminds me of an essay that the late Sylvia Harris had written for Stephen Heller's at the education of a graphic designer, where she talks about how black designers have sort of fallen into this pattern of imitation rather than innovation. And mm. that uh, the work tends to mimic what they might've been taught in schools or, or whatever around like the Bauhaus or like Swiss style or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's less about, you know, their own kind of cultural touch points. And that's not to say necessarily that that cultural touch point is a direct line to Africa, like a tribe or a country or anything yeah. like that, but just like where you come from. I mean, us as African-Americans have a very unique culture in this country that is ripe with inspiration for so many things. I I had absolutely, you know, I had Brent Rollins on the show for episode 400. And I mean, just the shit that he has created out of his experience is so uniquely like African-American, but also is hip hop and film. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean, the man made the logo for boys in the hood for poetic justice when he was like a teenager. That's very much, I think, the point, right? When when Design to Divest first came together, I remember we had a conversation. Somebody on the call had lamented the fact that there wasn't, you know, a black graphic design tradition that they could call upon in school. And I was like, what are we talking about? What are we talking about? Absolutely not, right? Like when it comes to the combination of text and image in terms of its resonance in our culture, black designers are without par, right? Mm -hmm. But we just don't consider that graphic design because it's not Swiss school publications, poster nominations. I mean, has the AIGA ever recognized pen and pencil studios? Mm, I don't think so. Then they are not talking about graphic arts in this country. Because Pen and Pencil Studios is a seminal Pen and Pixels. Pen and Pixel Studios is a seminal, seminal studio when it comes to not just the African American, but the American graphic design tradition, if we're really getting down to brass tacks, right? So there's a huge black, just, I mean, you know, whatever kind of design you want to you know, focus on, but as a graphic designer, there's a huge black graphic design tradition that we don't even think about because it's so denigrated. And so when we talk about decolonizing and divesting, you know, that can get really heady. But what I mean is that like, we should be in the same way that so much of the Bauhaus and Swiss school is about 
so the Swiss poster thing, that's about wheat paste posters that the Swiss put up on the street for advertisements. That's what that's about, right? That's the root of, you know, the Swiss poster and all this other thing. It's, it's street advertisement. So if we're enthralled to street advertisement, then let's go find those iconic street ads for hip hop records, for clothing lines, for all of the representations of black American culture, which has been the primary driver of American culture since uh, time immemorial. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But yeah. And so when we talk about like, what does that walled garden look like? What we're trying to do is to coalesce and, and to ideally produce and, and publish this knowledge and make it available for people. You know, it, it kills me to see, it's definitely a common refrain among folks. Take us off the mood boards and put us in in the creative directorships, right? Like we are already as as black people inherently creative because you have to be to be fly in the face of systemic oppression. And then our creativity is never what is compensated. While it is what drives all of the cultural engine, you can go, you find discrete examples of that, like the, the young woman who created the concept of on fleek, mm-hmm. right? Has the millions of dollars worth of advertising that have used that word in the last, I don't know how many years, you know, provided a dime to her, you know, but that's, it's so symptomatic of the extractive nature of our social media platforms. I think in particular, where so much, especially now during the pandemic of our culture is not only you know consumed, but create it. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, as you mentioned, kind of social media and the algorithm, like there are people now that I don't want to say that they, they've come up, but what you're finding now is like this new instantiation of a designer who is more curator than creator. It's less about what they may themselves be making and more about what they can sort of pull together from what others have made because there's so much noise for lack of a better term out there that -hmm. they're the ones that can say, okay, here's the good shit that you need to pay attention to. And like, Mm -hmm. then that person ends up being like a tastemaker or something in their own right because of that. Oh yeah. Well, and, and the ability to manipulate the algorithm has now been passed off for creative direction. Mm, True. True that. And I think that's, Okay, sure, it is creative direction, but it's creative direction in the service of what? And so for me, the by at all sort of you know opportunity is trying to turn away from from the algorithm as a as a driving factor in in the work that I'm creating is is a big big point for me these days. Mm. Let's kind of uh, switch gears here a little bit. I'm curious to know about the Michael Collette origin story. Where did you grow up initially? I was born here in San Francisco, and like I mentioned before, my parents are both landscape architects, and uh, in the late 80s, the Bechtel Company was hiring lots of landscape architects to work on a project in Kuwait. And so my folks, being relatively young and fresh out of school-ish, first couple jobs said, you know, hey, pay looks good, you know, live abroad for a couple of years, we've got this kid. They'll pay for his English school out there. Sounds great. And so 
I want to say mid-88, we packed up here in San Francisco and, and flew off to Kuwait and planned on being there for, I think, at least four or five years. Hmm. And as the summer of, oh God, the timeline escapes me, but the summer of the, of the first Gulf War, before it was the first Gulf War, mm-hmm. we went on vacation to Cyprus to visit my godfather in Scotland and to visit some family in New York. And when we got to New York and got settled in at our hotel, and these were, of course, the days before cell phones and, and people had to you know, know where you were going and call ahead, there was a, a message from my aunt saying to turn on CNN and that she hoped we had packed winter clothes because the Iraqi Republican Guard had not only entered Kuwait, but had set up its command center in our apartment building. <laughs> oh, shit. Wow. So what was a vacation very quickly turned into, I guess we're coming back to the States now and we returned to San Francisco, but from there we sort of bounced around a bit. I mostly grew up in Davis, California, which I will mostly hold my tongue about. Um, (laughs) There's, there's some very nice people there and some less so people there and put it that way. But then I went to, a few different schools, first University of California at Riverside. Then when my mother got a job at Penn State, I went to Penn State main campus. That was a bit of a culture shock. University of California at Riverside was the first minority majority UC school. Penn State main campus was 85% white when I got there. Mm-hmm. And it snowed in October. And like I said, I'm from California and not built for that. But I met some wonderful people at Penn State, in spite of it being occasionally a pleasant villain horror. And then came back to Sacramento, having not finished, and then went, moved to Philadelphia, outside of which is Penn State Abington, in order to finish my my education there. That was sort of a choose-your-own-adventure degree. I had originally started studying political science and bounced around and did a bunch of stuff. As the child of designers, I definitely did not want to join the family business for a long time, or at least I thought I didn't. The, The punchline to that story is I'm currently now enrolled in school to, for architecture. So obviously I did not want to do it that badly, but you know how kids are, right? You know, I'm just <laughs> going to rebel against everything. I'll go be a lawyer. And then I realized that was a horrible idea. So by the time I, I got to Penn State Abington, I, I definitely needed to write some very persuasive essays to convince these folks why all these disparate classes from three different schools amounted to a degree. <laughs> but we did that. And and then I ended up back in Sacramento sort of twiddling my thumbs. I worked a uh, traveling salesman job for a Mormon windows heating and air conditioning company just as the economy was cratering in 2007, Mm. which was weird. Definitely got chased off of some Stockton front porches by the sound of cocking shotguns, et cetera, et cetera. Sort of surprised I didn't get turned into a hashtag, although I don't know if they had those then. Um, (laughs) And from there, I sort of realized that because I could passively photo edit in Photoshop and export to PDF, 
that for boomers, I was essentially a computer whiz and could pass myself off as a, a graphic designer to people who didn't know any better. And then I quickly realized that I was in over my head and needed to go learn a bunch of stuff, which I spent the next 10 years doing. And here I am. Hmm. So one of your, your early design gigs was there in San Francisco. You were working for Mule Design Studio, which mm. I think for people that are listening to the show that know about design have probably heard of Mule Design because of its proprietor, Mike Montero. How was that job? I'm just curious. How was it like working there? Mule was a really, really interesting gig. Mule is, has since shuttered. And I think both Mike and Erica are, are consulting and, and uh, mostly doing speaking and writing gigs now. But Mule was a really educational experience for me, as much in terms of design as it was in terms of how to deal with clients. And I think particularly about the politics of design work. And I say politics in sort of a lowercase sense. I, I mentioned that I studied political science in school. And one of the things that early, you know, 101 political science courses talk about is this idea that politics isn't just party A, party B, big national election. Politics is the struggle for power in any group of people larger than one. <laughs> mm -hmm. And when you look at it in that lens, particularly client work is a lot of political reading and handholding of the organization that you're performing the work for. One of the things that we used to talk about at Mule that I find is such a great metric for things these days is that the main navigation bar of any organizational website will tell you so much about the politics of that organization if you know how to look at it. An organization that has a very succinct and easy to understand top menu bar, top level nav particularly, is one that you know, I mean, might have its internal problems still, but at least has a proper sort of delegation of powers, right? Like a, a hugely overcrowded main nav is a symptom of something organizational and much larger than just the design. Mm. And I think that's as much as anything, the key that I took away from Mule is that design is a reflection of the organizational priorities and politics of whoever it is in question. Interesting. Now I'm thinking back at the last two places that I worked before my current uh, gig and how design was, it was a reflection of, of internal politics. Like <laughs> the first company I remember sort of starting at, it started out as, or at least when I started there, it was this sort of small, stable, fairly well-known software company. And their design was pretty kind of basic, kind of austere, you know, nothing mm -hmm. that's like winning awards, nothing mind blowing, but they were also very well funded and stable and all their employees loved it. And then we switched to becoming the startup overnight and the branding was so, I use chaotic in a good way, mm -hmm. but the design was like, oh my God, I'm really trying to accurately pinpoint how weird this was. It was sort of like, late 90s early 2000s like murakami anime style wow. where it was certainly trying to like 
push a boundary. And this is a tech company, like trying to push a boundary, but then it's yeah. also like bordering on juvenile because mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, we were a young company. We had went from being this old company to a startup overnight. And that really reflected as the company went on, the people that attracted the way that we sort of did business, unfortunately, kind of the internal politics as well. And then the second place I worked at was this very kind of stoic Eastern European tech startup. And the design very much reflected that. It was just black. Like I started, they had a logo and they had black and two shades of gray. And that was the brand. And that very much yep. reflects the monoculture of the company. Like, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's a really good perception there. Yeah. That I think was was one of my big takeaways from Mule. The other one, and and this was I think credit to to Mike Montero where it's due, was that it's just websites. Um, <laughs> you know, I think a lot of a lot of our industry, a lot of our profession, is beset with a really inordinate amount of stress and anxiety and pressure. Um, some of which is self-generated, some of which is client-generated, some of which is generated by the fact that we live under capitalism. But at the end of the day, like it's just websites. Like yeah. everybody needs to take a deep breath. Yeah, that's something that I I'm glad that I've been able to keep in perspective throughout my career. Because I mean, I I started designing websites. God, this is dating me. I started designing designing websites in 1997. Hey, <laughs> I mean, this is basic ass HTML, GeoCities, Athens Roads, 1130. Hey, you know those, what I'm saying? I bet those sites could still run. I bet. Oh, yeah, they definitely probably, could still run. Absolutely. You know? I'm, I'm pretty sure if there's a GeoCities archive somewhere, my old website with my full address and phone number at the time oh, is, is probably <laughs> is probably still on the web somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The, but the privacy uh, fails we all committed in those days. Oh my god! And I remember when my mom found out about it, and I mean, she chewed me out. Like, why are you put not? Why are you put not address on the internet? I was like, nobody's Strangers gonna find on the it. Internet. Nobody's gonna find it. Like, come on. Like, yeah, there's gonna be some some hacker in Stockton, California. That's like, I can't wait to get to Selma, Alabama, and find. A- that's mm. not gonna happen. But I say that to say, like, having been on the web, building things on the web for such a long time. All of this shit is so ephemeral and like it's going to get redesigned and over it, which is why I never really sweat or stress web design in general. Like some people really like live this shit like Moses came down from the mountain with two tablets, you know, like I, and I understand running Figma. I, I just don't get it. And I, and I understand that, but it's like, I'm like, dude, in 10 years, all of this is going to be like sitting on a hard drive somewhere. Well, None of this is going to matter. Like, I hate to break it to web designers, but your cookie acceptance banner takes up half the goddamn page to begin with. So I don't God. know what we're looking at to start with. The speed at which that has taken over every website in the past GDPR two years. killed mobile web design, and God. I sort of love it. I mean, you go to a website, and there's like three successive pop-ups. There's... <laughs> a full page modal to subscribe to their newsletter with some snarky dark pattern. No, I don't want to save 20%. And then you've got the cookie banner and then something else pops up. I'm like, I just wanted to read this news article. Oh, wait, it's behind a paywall. Damn. Up uh, reader mode. There you go. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Oh, man. I'll just, I'll just go find the tweet and read it on reader mode because you're not getting my eyeballs for this. But, I mean, this is where we've arrived, right? This is the world we've designed ourselves into or that has been designed around us. Because, I, I mean, I, I'm not responsible for the GDPR modals. But it does, I think, come back to, again, that that pressure that we have. Not pressure necessarily, but the potential that that exists for us as designers to unfuck some of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully, you know, I mean, I don't know what can be done about shell oil or, you know, whomever, but at wherever we can, there's that potential to sort of rest things towards not sucking. It's funny. You mentioned that about shell. I would think it, God, it might've been earlier this year where Exxon's, shareholders have to come to them and say, look, you all have to do something else besides oil. <laughs> I mean, dissolve? Like, what else does Exxon <laughs> do besides oil? Like, I don't know. I, I feel like that's sort of like walking up to the fox and being like, you've got to eat something other than chicken. Yeah. I, I mean. Diversify. Uh, it's not Wu-Tang Financial. Like, it's Exxon. <laughs> They, if anything, they should be held liable for crimes against humanity and dissolved. But like, what are we talking about? Uh, yeah. you know, shareholders aren't going to vote for that. But I'm sure they've got some cracking diversity initiatives going right now. <laughs> I'm sure there's a bag for somebody waiting at, at BP to to stand there and be the, the black face of their diversity, equity and inclusion extraction initiative. Oh, yeah. They'll hire most likely. And I hate to say this, but it's only because I've seen it as a pattern. But they'll hire a black woman to do it. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. And and run her out like Google did to Timnit. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I was just I mean, it's a shameful practice that that particularly I think a lot of the the techies are are very guilty of. We had brought up previously an article I had written a while ago, but I, there's another one I had written this also a while ago now, uh, but I think when I was at Mule, because we had a, a day in the office laughing about Google having spent a quarter of a billion dollars trying to solve their diversity problem over the previous five years and somehow not having solved it. And my immediate question was, well, have they tried hiring black people? <laughs> and it apparently seemed that uh, nobody who took their $250 million suggested that to them. But then they do that, and then they do how they do. So it's sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But Yeah. That's something I've always been wary of. And I've taken, I mean, in like, speaking of where are the black designers, because we talked about that earlier, like when I did that presentation initially mm-hmm. in 2015, and I gave... I gave a very reluctant update to that presentation in 2020. And I say that because when I gave it, and I mentioned this in my keynote, but for people who didn't hear the keynote, I got so much shit for that presentation after I gave it that it pretty much tanked my studio. I had to go out and get a job because like all my business stuff had dried up just because I said the answer to that question of where the black designers should not come from black designers. It has to be from a coalition of people, from organizations and businesses and schools. And quite frankly, black designers didn't create the problem. So stop asking yeah. us. That's and so, not an answer people want to hear. Yeah. But like I say, I reluctantly gave an update because I let it, I recorded it. I put it up on YouTube and just, it's been up there since like March of 2015 with like mm-hmm. no comments or anything. It wasn't until last year, like in the wake of like 
people getting down the streets and protesting and companies saying, well, we want to uplift black voices and share black voices and such that people found the presentation were willing to give me money for it. Shout out to reparations. And, you know, we're talking about it now in this new light to this honestly now newly perceptive design community that was willing to hear it and was yeah. like, oh, this is actually good advice. Why didn't anyone take this advice five years ago? I mean, who knows? But I gave that reluctant well, I mean, update. Know, Obama had been president. What more do you want? I mean, Listen, <laughs> but I gave a reluctant update to it because one, I was like, I really don't have anything else to contribute to the conversation, first of all. And secondly, not much has changed. Now, I think some certain statistics around it have changed. Like when I you know, talked about the percentage of black students at schools, but I also sort of spliced in economic data. I'm like, look, white households in this country have like 10x to 13x the net worth of black households. And so if you're looking to these high tuition schools to try to find black designers, it's going to be hard to find when black families largely can't afford them. But also, you know, saying that companies need to stop building pipelines because when I hear pipeline, I think of something that sort of strips resources out of a place and exactly. transfers it to another place. And there's always this talk about, oh, the pipeline, there's a pipeline problem. There's not a pipeline problem. There's a relationship problem because what's happening mm-hmm. is these companies are looking at HBCUs and black design groups as, and such as like this fertile soil that they can keep harvesting from, but not planting seeds. And exactly. it's like you and keep the mentality is, is totally extractive. It's yeah. totally extractive. It's totally yeah. extractive. I'm like, if you're not also helping by, like for a school, for example, maybe offer to embed an employee there as a teacher or help to get their curriculum up to the point where harvesting has, I don't want to say harvesting, Jesus Christ, <laughs> but like pulling students from those schools makes more economic sense in terms of getting them up to speed with what's in the market and all that sort of stuff. And then I said, look, I'm not giving another update to this presentation. Like, this is it. This is it. Well, and and the truth is, is I don't need another pipeline. There's a a gentleman on the steering committee with us at Design Divest, uh, Aziz Ali, and and he has a a great quote. He says, uh, black people are over-mentored and Mm under-resourced. And I really love that as it's one of our organizing principles at, at Design Divest. We know what we're doing. Just get off the money. At a certain point, pipelines and internship. No, just stop. Yeah. Pay your taxes, pay your tithes if you're, you know, a credulous person, but just get up off the money. Cause that's what it is. And whether it's it's a pipeline or some other kind of extractive relationship with black communities, it's not the way forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just Come up off the money, write the check, or as as uh, Tiffany Ashley Bell put it, I think she said, send the wire, make the hire, something like that. Exactly. I'm probably exactly. butchering that quote, but it's something to that effect, yeah. Send the tracking number and we can get on the flight. Shout out to Larry June, speaking of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, at, at a certain point, like uh, there's black squares and, and oh look at we were so sad about the way we treated all those folks in the past well have you paid them out you know are you paying us out now like what are we talking about yeah you know for a a stringently capitalist and and profit focused culture that we live in all of a sudden everybody's real touchy-feely 
talk about <laughs> platitudes and emotions and shit when, you know, all of a sudden it was the quarterly report and making sure those those metrics worked. I certainly don't want to hear about emotions from tech companies who, whose whole thing is that we make data driven decisions. Well, your bank account is data. <laughs> drive, drive it. Yeah. Just go ahead and make that detour. Exactly. Take that exit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not even a detour, right? Because like, you know, speaking of, of San Francisco and, and particularly the way that, that companies behave extractively, right? we're not just when we talk about the algorithm on Twitter or on Instagram, and we're not just talking about that in terms of extraction. But these are companies that have fomented and precipitated huge amounts of displacement in San Francisco who have gotten sweetheart deals from local politicians going back multiple administrations now who have never paid their fair tax share who, you know, in the state of California for companies like DoorDash and Uber, you know, have been instrumental in demolishing worker protections and labor law just to pad their own bottom line. You know, so when we talk about extractive stuff and especially where design is concerned, you know, that really sort of covers the whole industry in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, one thing that you mentioned, you know, wanting to talk about, and I think it's probably tangential to what we're discussing now is about sort of class awareness and politics among the black creative class. So I want to open up the floor so we can talk <laughs> about that. And so you can go more in depth with that topic. Well, I mean, I think it, a lot of it sort of ties into some of what we were talking about on the panel discussion. When we talk about particularly like are black people capable of appropriating from other black people are black people capable of being gentrifiers are black people capable of, of behaving in these extractive ways right and the example that we brought up on on the panel was the michael b jordan now untitled again rum brand that had you know run afoul of people who are deeply invested in the history and traditions of carnival but there's any number of examples with that. You know, I know for black Southerners and, and for people who are invested in in the South, the attention that Tulsa has been getting, for instance, you know, there's been a lot of discussion around whose right it is to tell this story, mm -hmm. who benefits from the telling of it, you know, and, and these are questions that involve the black creative class, right? If we're yeah. in the business of telling stories, like that's who we're talking about. So listen, listen I'm from Selma, Alabama. So mm -hmm. let me tell you about how black people can gentrify other black people. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. When yes. Selma, the movie happened, Selma, know. the city did not have a movie theater. I didn't grow up with a movie theater. My first movie theater I went to, I was 17, 18 when I first moved to Atlanta. But I, I say this to say, like, Selma, and I'll, I'll let you get back to what you were saying, but when you said that, that really stuck out to me. Like, I just remember during that time and my mom telling me about how, like, so many celebrities are coming through the city. And, like, to me, I'm thinking, okay, well, what's going to happen when they leave? Are they putting resources and things back into the city? Because I know when I go home, downtown is boarded up. Mm -hmm. Selma is still like one of the most violent cities in Alabama, mm -hmm. probably the number one most violent city in the in the state. There's parts surrounding Atlanta. I'm not Atlanta. Oh, shit. There's parts surrounding Selma <laughs> that the World Health Organization has classified as bad as third world countries. Like yep. 
you want to talk about how black people can gentrify and take from other black people? Why is yeah. Selma always a political stop? Yeah. Obama and, and them and, come through and march across the bridge and then what? And drive right out. Right out. Yeah. Sorry. That ooh, sorry. No, <laughs> no, 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 that's, but Maurice, that's exactly that's exactly my point, right? Is that as designers, as people who deal in symbols, we need to be critical about how symbols are used. Yeah. And that's something I think that is often missing from and the class awareness of that, right? Because like not only is Selma this this major political stop, but it remains a bastion of entrenched generational poverty there. Mm-hmm. And and the way that the black political class, the black sort of celebrity and entertainment class, but also the black intelligentsia and the academic class and those of us, myself included, in the creative class treat not just Selma, but other places and parts and, and and people in our culture as symbols to sort of be pointed at as opposed to people to interact with. Yeah. And I think that's something that is often that I find, I'll, I'll try to be as, as sort of politic as possible, but that I find is often missing in some of these larger conversations. Right. And when we talk about extractive, you know, we were joking about the diversity and equity and inclusion at Exxon. But I don't know how much of a difference I draw between Exxon and Uber in that regard. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of a difference I draw between Exxon and Facebook in that regard. You know, and it's one thing to go get a bag. And I'm not trying to I'm not trying to call anybody out for that. But I do think that in getting a bag, we have to make sure that we're not continuing to enable things that are detrimental, not only to communities that we're a part of, but larger ones. Yeah. So back in, in 2014, uh, you wrote this piece called now is the time for a black graphic design. And there's, there's a line at the end and I'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can, can check it out. But there's a line at the end where you say, if black data processing associates have organized to support one another, why can't we? Or maybe the better question is, who's going to stop us? Do you still feel that way? I mean, honestly, yes, now more than ever. I want all working people to organize, whether we are white collar workers, blue collar workers, black collar and service workers. um, As working people, we have much more in common with one another than we do with our bosses. As black creative workers, I think it is incredibly important on us and, and, and imperative for us to, to organize in some way or another. I am blown away, speaking of black creative talent, by the TikTok strike. Yes. I shout out the TikTok strike. Because <laughs> I, am, I am too old to have it on my phone, but I see it come through my social feeds and I know that they are they got those those white dance thieves hurting right now because they are not putting it together for him. And I think that is, maybe it's for jokes, but I think it's really serious. Right. And, and and that is very much what I'm talking about by what I'm, when I say, you know, resisting the algorithm, the commodification and the extraction of our culture, 
because TikTok has turned, you know, some of these offbeat ass white kids into millionaires mm-hmm. when the people whose dances they're stealing are, you know, still working with cracked phones. And it's like, I think now, you know, the hidden upside, if you will, of our, our digital era is that so much of what's already been going on for generations is now not only visible, but hyper compressed, right? Like it took 20 years for Elvis to get famous from stealing from black artists. Mm-hmm. But now these kids are doing it so fast that you can still see the people they're stealing from. And, yeah. and, and I think there's something to that. So yeah, I absolutely believe that black creative workers of all kinds need to organize and need to unite because we are and continue to be the driving cultural force in this country and massively, massively undercompensated for it. And that's whether you're talking about sort of music and dance, entertainment production, but also graphic design and, and the way that that design influences popular culture. Mm hmm. Yeah. What are you obsessed with right now? I mean, I'm a lot of things. The thing that I've been getting sort of really into at the moment is is something that we've been working on for Greenworks, which is 3D printing with ceramic. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I'm fascinated by a lot of the potential for new materials production and new ways of doing sort of micro industrial production and thinking about how to sort of rest the utility of a lot of the the new manufacturing and production methods back towards more artisanal or like small run kind of production things. But I mean, I'm, I'm obsessed with lots of stuff, man. How much time you got? (laughs) We got time. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing that, that I'm sort of endlessly passionate about is the history of the city of San Francisco. It's partially just sort of being a, uh, unrepentant Homer, but in a lot of ways, I've always felt that San Francisco can be a bit of a bellwether for the nation, particularly both politically and economically. This has always been a bit of a neoliberal hellscape from the gold rush onward, of course. And if you learn to read the history of it, as much as I suppose the history of any place, it becomes very clear why what's happening now is what's happening. And I think especially as a designer, as somebody who's admittedly very online, knowing the... And it's also, like I said, it's my hometown. So knowing the the nooks and crannies and and the how we got here is very important to me. Mm. Do you feel satisfied creatively at this stage in your career? No, never. Why is that? Uh, Oh, I mean, there's projects that I haven't even finished coming up with the ideas for yet. I'm sort of, uh, I may have mentioned it offhandedly, but I'm also currently beginning to go back to school now for a license for architecture. The built environment, of course, having landscape architects for parents has always fascinated me. And it, it the license to change the built environment, which is what an architecture license is, feels like a real sort of Mario star for designers, right? Like you can, oh, you can make a website, you make a chair, but like this is the thing that sets off the 
the theme music and lets you do literally whatever. Mm-hmm. So no, I'm I'm nowhere near creatively satisfied because I feel like there's just all kinds of things I could be sinking my teeth into. At 35, I finally feel like I've kind of got my feet under me. You know, a decade in the industry has shown me a lot and it's shown me as much of what I don't want to do as what I do, but the things that are possible. And I think especially now like the what the the possibilities between the one thing about Greenworks that bears mentioning is that we're all on separate coasts, basically. Ange is in Seattle, Muhammad's in New York, and I'm in San Francisco. And we've created a, a company and got up and running without ever all being in the room at the same time, mm-hmm. which, you know, I guess in the context of the pandemic is a little less remarkable. But to me, that's still kind of wild that you can do something like that. And and I'm really excited to explore the potentials that, you know, as much as I was sort of poo-pooing global supply chains, the potentials of global networks of communication and idea exchange to me are just incredibly exciting when it comes to creative work. And then, you know, potentially the idea of, like I was talking about with, with 3D printing, being able to empower people to create things for themselves, to take part in what had previously been seen as sort of, you know, enormous isolated industrial processes at a real personal level. When you think back over your career and where you've worked and the type of work that you've done, et cetera, people you've met, what advice has really kind of stuck with you over the years? Oddly enough, I uh, would probably have to give another shout out to Mule here, particularly Erica Hall, who was one of the partners there. And Erica was the one who was broadly engaged in in a lot of the really naughty kind of personal one-to-one facilitation that enabled the graphic design work to run as smoothly as it did. And she would occasionally come back from a, a tough session and sort of flop down on the couch in the office and, and let out a sigh and say, humans are fascinating. <laughs> and that, I think that phrase and just that sense of not necessarily like emotionless detachment, but a, a professional detachment from our work that as engrossing and as occasionally anxiety inducing as it can be that it's, you know, it's just websites and people are fascinating and we're very, very lucky to be able to do the work that we do in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And if we can keep that in mind, even in the roughest moments, there's still something to be, to be gained out of it. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work like, do you see yourself doing? You'll be 40 at that point. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose I will. <laughs> what, what kind of thanks, work do thanks you Thanks for reminding me that. Hey, look, uh, I just, I just turned 40 this year. So I'm, I'm well aware of the change. But yeah, what do you see yourself? What kind of work do you want to be doing? Having undertaken now the, uh, and, and now set it on a podcast. So I'm really fucking responsible for it. The effort to return to school for an architecture license. I would love to be working in the field in five years in some capacity or another. I'm not really between my, my politics and everything else, not super interested in going to work for the, the big firms. I think again, the attraction is being able to 
alter the built environment in small and measurable ways myself. I've got some dear friends that go like a way back with who are in the construction business. And so pie in the sky, just a small little design build firm to take on particularly sort of affordable housing, adaptive reuse, like I said, the both the city of San Francisco and, and the idea of being able to to work on the built environment are both very important for me. And so, you know, I think there's ways to to alter that and to sort of encourage that change that ideally are possible. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? The best place to start is probably the Instagram account at greenworks.earth because all of the the stuff that I've been talking about throughout this podcast will be slowly starting to to dribble out there over the next few months. I'm on Twitter at either underscore underscore MCLC or MCLC underscore underscore. I can never remember which. And hell, I guess I said my email at the beginning. If people do want to get in touch, I'm workingmichael at gmail.com. I don't keep much of a a web presence as is in keeping with a lot of the things that I've spoken with you about here today. But I do maintain a small portfolio of some work at http colon slash slash what if I told you I had no web dot site. <laughs> I like that. I, I've Thank been you. there and it's like it's like a little it's a presentation. It, it's pretty it dope actually. Thank you. Thank you. It is, as the presentation that is linked there says, now is not the time for portfolio sites. Now is the time for a black graphic design, as it was in 2014. It's still the time for a black graphic design. And that's, I think, what I'm focused on as much as anything else. We're also, you can also find Design to Divest at Design Numeral 2 Divest on Instagram which is probably the the easiest place to get on our website. We're also on a wonderful platform, uh, and I'd like to shout them out, the folks at Arena, A-R-E dot N-A. I don't know if you're familiar with them, Maurice. Um, Yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah, I'm I'm on Arena at just regular old MCLC. That's probably the, the easiest place to find out what's going on in my brain these days because it's where I collect a lot of my thoughts. Nice. Michael Collette, man, this conversation I feel like has been a long time coming, but I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, so much for sharing your your wisdom, your perspective. I mean, I, I knew when I first encountered you years and years ago, I was like, I feel like you've got something to say. And I don't know if there was maybe a reluctance to to talk about it, but I mean, just to see how much you have been doing over the past few years. And even, you know, like I said, hearing you at the most recent, where are the black designers conference? Like I want to hear so much more from you, just like your work and your words and everything. And so I hope that this interview in some way can be a catalyst for that. But yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I absolutely, I really, really appreciate it. I think what I will say is that I probably was trying to, you know, I mean, these may be, you know, easy to, to exchange opinions over a Skype call, but uh, in the same way that, that where the black designers may have thrown you for a loop, I haven't won a lot of friends with uh, a lot of my takes when it comes to design and politics in my career. And so I think maybe, maybe all those years ago, I was probably still trying to play it safe. But at this point, 
that they haven't killed me yet. So I might as well just keep going. <laughs> well, that's a morbid way to put it, but I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Like uh, if there's, if there's ever a time now to get it out, this is it. Yeah. No, and yeah. This, this is the time to be living as authentically as we can. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. Big, big thanks to Michael Collette. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Michael and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about Revision Path overall? We'd love to hear from you, so do not be a stranger. Hit us up. Twitter, Instagram, just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or, or, you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it helps us grow and it helps us reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>